And God has already said, no, you cannot save and redeem yourself because the penalty for sin is death. If you commit a crime worthy of death, it doesn't matter how many good things you offer the court. If your crime deserves death, it doesn't matter how many good things you offer God because our sin deserves death. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 9 of the Book of Romans, and in our passage from verses 25 and 26, we've been looking at the Apostle Paul's argument as he quotes from the prophet Hosea that God, ever before he sent us Jesus Christ, had seen the nation Israel's falling away from accepting Christ as Messiah. But in these verses, the prophet proclaims and Paul confirms that Israel will one day return. And as we rejoin Pastor Brogy, we see that already the nation which had been scattered is in the process of returning to Israel in fulfillment of prophecy. Look at Hosea 2 and let's pick it up in verse 16 so we get the flow of context moving into our verse this morning. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi. Ish is the Hebrew word for man or husband. Ishi means my husband. And will no longer, you will no longer call me Bailey, meaning my Baal. God is looking at a future day, and Hosea will spell it out, not at the first coming of Messiah, but at the second coming of Messiah, where the Jewish people will come into a living relationship with the Lord. Now, the word ish, ishi, my husband, or Bailey, my husband, those are synonyms in Hebrew. And so in different passages in the Old Testament, the word translated husband is sometimes Baal or Bailey or ish or ishi. But there's coming a day when because of the worship of Baal and even to take part of his name on your lips will be so repulsive to the Jewish people because of the wickedness of idolatry and their full and complete repentance. They're not going to even use the name Bailey. They're only going to call God Ishi, my husband. Verse 17, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day, I will may also make a covenant with them, for them, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. When will this happen? It will happen at the end of the great tribulation period when Jesus comes back, when the wolf will lay down with the lamb, the baby will play next to the cobra's nest and not be hurt, and God will bring peace into the pe amongst the people of Israel. Isaiah 2.4, you might want to write that in the margin next to verse 18. Let me read it to you. It's, if you've ever been to the United Nations, right in the front, there's a placard, a big stone granite piece with Isaiah 2.4 written on it. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Now, the United Nations thinks they're going to pull it off, but they're not. 
It's not until the Prince of Peace comes back in the context, this verse is fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes back. And what our government has been trying to do since the inception of Israel in 1948 to bring peace into that land, they're never going to pull off. But God will pull off. Now, they should try. We should be peacemakers, but it's not going to ultimately happen until Jesus comes back. Now look at verse 19 of chapter 2. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. And so God is speaking of this coming betrothal that will mark a new relationship with the people of Israel where they will come to know the Lord. This is the promise of the new covenant. We celebrate it every time as Gentiles at the Lord's Supper. There is a new covenant, a new deal, a new testament that the prophets spoke of. Jeremiah said this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, and with the house of Judah, that's the southern kingdom. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them out of by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. I was faithful, they weren't. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. When will this happen? If you've read Jeremiah, you know when it will happen. It will happen at the end of a period of time called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus references this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. We call it commonly today the Great Tribulation, a time of unsurpassed suffering and judgment on the earth. And God is going to use that time to awaken the eyes of the people of Israel and they are going to say, Jesus is Lord. They're going to come to know the Lord. Now look at verse 23 of Hosea 2. This is the verse that Paul is quoting in our passage this morning. I will sow her for myself in the land. That is, the Jews living in Israel will believe Jesus is Lord. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were low on me, not my people, you are on me, my people. And they will say, you are my God. Now, he has already made a very similar prophecy in Hosea 1.10. Let me read it to you. There Hosea writes, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. There is coming a day in the land of Israel where the people of Israel will be, the prophet says, like the sand of the sea. Why? Because they're going to be gathered from all over the world and brought back into that place we call Israel because of an irrevocable promise God made to Abraham. And in that place where it is said, you are not my people, it will be said, you are sons of the living God. There is going to come, and we're going to study it in Romans 11, a great reversal amongst the Jewish people. The Jewish people who, for the most part, rejected Jesus as Messiah, they are going to come and believe in him. Now, again, let me read Romans 9, verse 25. Stay here in Hosea. I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not my beloved, beloved. What is that a quotation of? Hosea 2, 23, the verse that we just read. 
All right, now, read Romans 9.26. You can turn back. And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. That's the verse we just read in Hosea 1.10 just a moment ago. Now, again, how do we understand these verses? There are some verses that have a double fulfillment. Now, follow me. This is not the milk of the word. This is the meat of the word. But we need to put on our thinking caps and think biblically today. The new covenant, Jeremiah 31, when God is going to forgive the iniquity of Israel and he's going to put his spirit within them and they're all going to know me from the least to the greatest. Ezekiel 36 and 37 speaks of the same promise. We speak of the valley of the dry bones when those bones are going to get up and God's going to take the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and the Jews are going to believe. That is yet to happen in a wholesale way, but it is going to happen. But it is being partially fulfilled today in the church. When you as a Gentile come to faith in the Lord Jesus, you become a recipient of the new covenant. That is a great blessing for us. Even so, the quotation from Hosea as Paul uses it, is dealing with the Jewish people. You could apply it to Gentiles, but in its original historical context, it's dealing with Jewish people. But we can apply it to Gentiles because of promises like in Ephesians 2, that there was a time when as non-Jews, as Gentiles, which is 99.9% .9 of us listening today, we we're separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in this world. We who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so Peter, if you've read 1 Peter, he actually takes the Hosea quote and he applies it to a non-Jew. Let me read 1 Peter 2.10. He says of Gentiles, you who are not a people, now are the people of God. You had not received mercy, have now received mercy. These outsiders had become insiders. These aliens, these foreigners were welcomed in as beloved members of the family. But understand how Paul is using it. Paul is not making an application. He is giving an interpretation from the original context from Hosea where he's speaking of the Jewish people. That though they were not his people because of unbelief, they are going to become his people. And so Hosea looks down the corridors of time to the second coming of Messiah when they will recognize their Messiah has come who of course is the Lord Jesus and they will believe in him. And so we read here in Romans 9, 26, and it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. In that place, meaning Israel, when God gathers all the Jewish people from around the planet and brings them back into the land, he is going to call them his people. Why? Because they are going to come to genuine faith. Now think about this for just a moment. The Jewish people were scattered through different judgments that God brought, like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Though one of the worst judgments that ever came upon Israel was the one that Jesus spoke of. He prophesied of it in Luke 19. Let me read, read it to you. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus prophesied that. It's found here. It's found in Mark. It's found in Matthew. 
In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus Vespasian came down and he dealt with the Jews in a horrible way. He crucified tens of thousands of them. They burnt the temple as the gold melted. Those greedy Roman soldiers were so committed to gathering every ounce of gold, they literally pried apart every single rock and they captured the gold. And what Jesus said was literally fulfilled. There was a few Jews that hung on and remained. And in 132 AD, another Roman general came down and he did a final sweep up and they were all forcefully expelled. For centuries, only a handful of Jewish people lived in Israel. In 1880, when they first started keeping records of the the demographics, there was 25,000 Jews living in Israel. At the time, there were 7.8 million Jews living on the earth. So that comprised about 3% of the Jewish population living there in 1880. In 1948, when they became a nation, there were 600,000 Jews out of 6 million at the time living there in Israel. Today, there are 6 million Jews living there out of about 14 million Jews. 43% of all the Jews on the planet are living today in Israel. God has already begun the process. God is already gathering the people. I've spoken to more than one Jewish person in Israel. Well, why'd you come here? They said, I don't know. Just God compelled me to leave this country, to leave that country, North Africa, Soviet Union, is that it's collapsed, America, all these different countries. God just compelled me to come here. There's no explanation except I knew God wanted me here. God is setting the stage. And during the Great Tribulation, he is going to finish it. But he needed a nation. He needed some people of a sizable amount to be able to pull off the final prophecies in human history that will unfold the second coming of Jesus Christ. But here's the point, and here's the reason why Paul is quoting the prophet Hosea. He is reminding us that Israel's unbelief did not take God by surprise that the prophet Hosea centuries before predicted that when Messiah came the first time, they would not be his people. They would reject Messiah. But then he looks past that to a future time to when Messiah comes a second time and the Jewish people who are not my people are going to become my people in a genuine spiritual way. Now, if that weren't enough to build his case, he goes even further. These who will be called the sons of the living God because they will have a spiritual birth and they will experience the new covenant. He also now quotes the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was a contemporary of Hosea. They lived during the same time frame. The only difference was that Hosea preached to the northern kingdom and Isaiah preached to the southern kingdom. If you've read Isaiah, the book opens up with the Assyrians having already decimated the northern kingdom. And he reminded the people in the southern kingdom that God was going to do the same to them if they didn't repent. But he also reminded them that God, though he had used Assyria as his tool to judge the northern kingdom, God was going to judge Assyria. Now look, if you will, at chapter 9, verse 27. I want you to notice what he's quoting here from the prophet Isaiah. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. 
Verse 28, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Now in verse 27, he's quoting Isaiah 10. And he says from Isaiah 10 that the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. Now, we've studied that, right? Remember, we went back earlier in chapter 9 when God took uh, Abraham outside of his tent and says, look up into the sky. You see all those stars? So shall your your descendants be. And then years later, when he's up on top of Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, he, he goes past with a new analogy. Not only does he speak of the stars of the heavens, but he speaks of the sand on the seashore. So shall your descendants be. And so, Abraham, you're going to have a lot of kids. And somebody will be able to say, Abraham was my great, 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 however many great it was, grandfather, because they are Jewish people. But out of all the stars in the heaven and out of all the sand on the seashore, only a remnant is going to be saved. Only a handful is going to believe in Messiah. And so he deals with the first coming of Messiah and the unbelief of Israel, just like Hosea the prophet does. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. And notice how he introduces the quote. He says, Isaiah cries out. And there's a lot of Greek words he could have selected for preaching or crying out, but he uses a very emotional word because this prophet's heart is broken when he looks at the Hebrew people who are like the sand of the seashore and he sees that only a handful of sand will be saved, his heart is broken. And so he says in verse 10, uh, from Isaiah 10 and verse 28, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And so Isaiah saw the judgment that was coming and the people needed to heed his warning. Verse 28 Just as foretold by Isaiah, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Just as out of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, so will be the judgment on the Jewish people. And it came. It came through the Assyrians and it came in 70 AD. Just like the prophet had said, just like the Lord Jesus had said. It was terrible. When Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, only a remnant was saved, specifically Lot and his two daughters. And by the way, if you're wondering how God feels about the sin of homosexuality, just read Genesis 19. I don't care what the president of World Vision came out and said this week, saying, well, now we're going to hire homosexual married people. And he compares it to baptism. He said, well, you know, there are Christians who differ on baptism. You know, some do it by immersion and some do it by sprinkling. And there are Christians who differ on this issue. And if there's a homosexual couple that's living in fidelity, you know, we're going to hire them on our staff. Now, I'm glad he changed his mind after the outrage and the threat of millions of dollars of loss, but it tells me where he is. God says here, through his prophet, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God is saving a remnant. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, you could translate it, the Lord of Sabaoth will save a remnant. But he's going to do far more than a remnant when we come to Romans 11 at the second coming of the Christ. So here's the point, and I don't want you to miss it. When Calvin looked around at the unbelief in his day, when Augustine looked at the unbelief of the Jews in his day, 
when the folks in Paul's day saw the unbelief of the Jewish people. They should not have concluded, this must mean that the Jewish people are no longer God's select nation. Because both Hosea and Isaiah prophesied that when the Christ came the first time, that the people of Israel would be in unbelief. So it didn't take God by surprise. God didn't make a bad decision. God didn't make a mistake when he chose them out of all the nations of the world. Now, there's the unbelief of Israel prophesied. Secondly, there's the unbelief of Israel explained. Look now, if you will, at verse 30. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? So Paul now brings this chapter on choosing Israel out of all the nations to a conclusion by really asking a question. Now, in light of all that he has taught us, if God really has elected the nation of Israel, then why are so many of them in unbelief? God foretold it would happen, but why did it happen? Why do we have this topsy-turvy situation where the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the last people in the world you would expect to come to faith, they believe in Jesus, but the majority of the Jews reject him? Well, notice what he says. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Now, understand how the term Gentile is used in the Bible. It is used in two ways. It is used ethnically to describe someone who is not a physical descendant of Abraham, but it's also used spiritually of a hardcore pagan. Understand, in the first century, most Gentiles were pagans. They were idolaters. They had rejected monotheism and became polytheistic. Man doesn't start with the belief of poly many gods. He starts with the belief that there's one God. God has revealed himself that there's one true God in creation and in conscience. And as we studied in Romans 1, when a man suppresses that truth, God gives him over and he worships created things rather than the creator. And so a Gentile in the first century was a hardcore pagan. There were some bright exceptions here and there, but most of them were in unbelief. That's why Jesus could say in the Sermon on the Mount, don't pray like the Gentiles. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do. Some translations interpret the word ethne Gentile and they say, as the pagans do or as the idolaters do. Don't pray like them. And so here's the point. The last people in the world you would expect to come to faith in Jesus Christ were Gentiles. The first people you would expect to receive him were Jews. Well, what was the problem? The problem was is that the Jews sought righteousness the wrong way. And so Jesus can say in Matthew chapter 21, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you do. But Israel, verse 31, notice, pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that righteousness. What were they doing? They were trying to get right with God by a law of righteousness, or you could paraphrase it, by good deeds. And God has already said, no, you cannot save and redeem yourself because the penalty for sin is death. If you commit a crime worthy of death, it doesn't matter how many good things you offer the court. If your crime deserves death, it doesn't matter how many good things you offer God because our sin deserves death. It doesn't matter who we are. He has already said in Romans 3, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the more quoted verses in the Bible, but without the preface. 
Romans 3.23 is introduced with the phrase, for there is no distinction. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, an African, an Asian, a European, doesn't matter if you're moral or immoral, religious or irreligious, there's no distinction. All of us have sinned, and those two words, have sinned, is one word in Greek, and it was used in the first century of someone who had veered from a known path, or someone with a bow and arrow shooting at a target who had missed the bullseye. And God uses the word morally in the New Testament to show that we have missed the bullseye, we have fallen short of the glory of God. Who is the glory of God? Jesus Christ. He is the standard of righteousness. For to see him is to see the Father and next to him, we miss that mark of righteousness. We fall short of that righteousness. And so the Jews pursued a righteousness through the law. And they thought that somehow they could get righteous by the things they did. And they didn't come clean with God. And it's true with any problem you face. Deny the problem, nothing can be done about it. Admit the problem and there is once the possibility for a solution. And so they did not in their religiosity want to admit that they had a problem, whereas the tax gatherers and the prostitutes, you didn't have to convince them of it. If I might illustrate it, if everyone on their seats this morning stood on the bottom part of their chair and on the count of three, I said, everyone jumped to this front platform. It would be a total impossibility and you'd be foolish to even try. Now, the people in the front rows might get closer than the people up there in the nosebleed seats, but it would be impossible for anyone to come to this platform. And so it is with Israel. They did not see the impossibility of trying to get right with God by the things they achieved. Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. What was the problem? They chose their way rather than God's way. And some of you here today, I've tried to convince you that your way won't make it, but you don't listen to me. But your argument is not with me. Your argument was with God Almighty. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. God will say by his prophet that my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. James will say in James 2.10, if you kept the whole law and you just broke one commandment, it's as if you broke them all. That's how holy God is. If you take a rock and you throw it through the window, you don't say, well, part of the window is broken. You say, no, the window is broken. And if you've obeyed all the laws and broken only a few, it's like you've disobeyed them all, for that is how holy God is. And so man cannot pursue a righteousness by the things he does. Paul will say to the church at Galatia, for if righteousness could be attained or gained through the law, then Christ's death was meaningless. He died for nothing. So quoting Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28, look at verse 33. Just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Isaiah 8.14. Now what does that mean? It means that not everyone is going to embrace Jesus as Lord. To listen again to today's message entitled Stumbling Over Truth, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
And if you'd like a CD or DVD copy, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM49, entitled Stumbling Over the Truth. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we conclude our message, Stumbling Over Truth. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.